Well, if you have your Bible, turn me to Genesis chapter 4. My plan today was to begin a new 10-week series on the Ten Commandments, um, kind of looking to see uh, what they mean in the, in, in the context of redemptive history and how they apply to us and what we as a church uh, should do in response to them. Uh, but for a couple of reasons, I've decided to wait until June 7th to, uh, to start that series until we can get back together, at least many of us. And so this morning, we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, early last week, I got a text message from one of my neighbors saying, Hey, John, we're going to, a bunch of us are going to go in together. We're going to pitch in. We're going to rent an aerator, and we're going to uh, take a weekend and just aerate uh, our yards. Is this something you want to, you want to uh, partner with us in? Now, my first response was, uh, no thanks. I'd, I'd rather get a root canal than that, uh, than spend a hot and humid Saturday uh, aerating my lawn. Um, but the more that I considered it, the more that I realized this may provide an opportunity for me to get to know some neighbors that I, I've never met before, and it actually did provide that opportunity. So I, te- I sent a text back, and I said, yeah, count me in. I'd, I'd be glad to, to uh, jump in with you guys, but I am going to have to, I'm going to need a little bit of instructions. Like, I don't know how to work uh, this machine. And so the text that I got back was, sure, we'll, we'll give you some instructions. And so yesterday, about 3 p.m., a guy came over to the house and I went out and we started talking, and he said, okay, you're about two back in line now to get the machine. And I said, can you help me like, understand how this thing works? And he said, okay, there's a little white switch at the front. That's the on-off uh, button. And then you start it kind of like you would a, mow- a mower. You crank it by pulling the uh, cord. And then he said, there are three red l- uh, levers. The first lever actually lowers the aerator spoons. Um, the second red le- lever serves as uh, the, the, it gets the engine going, it's the throttle. And the third uh, red lever, it actually propels the aerator spoons. I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to need more than just a verbal instruction here. You're going to have to show me because I, I'll, sure enough, I'll aerate my driveway without some help. So can you come over and show me how this thing works? And so uh, he agreed when it was my turn, came over, got a brief tutorial. There are some things that, that are complex enough that in order for us to really teach for understanding, we have to actually show how that works. Uh, last week, Pastor Adam did a terrific job of, of explaining Jesus' words from Luke 24, where Jesus says that basically all the Scripture is about me. It all points to me. I was thoroughly uh, encouraged by it. Um, but this is an idea that maybe for some of you is new. You haven't really thought about this, that how does Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, how do some of these Old Testament books actually point to Jesus? And so this morning, I want to take a little bit of time, and I want to show you from what may seem to be an obscure passage, maybe even uh, a random passage to go to, I want to show you, give an example of how the Scripture points to Jesus. In this story about two brothers that ends in murder, I want to show you how even it has hints and traces of Jesus in it. Now, it's easier to see Jesus in Genesis chapter 3. We have this uh, where God pronounces the curse, and he, he reveals the curse to the serpent, and he t- says to the serpent that uh, the seed of the woman will crush your head, and we know that the seed of the woman who would come and destroy the serpent, Satan, is actually Christ himself. It's easier to see there. And immediately before that, still in chapter 3, after getting precisely what they wanted by eating the forbidden tree, Adam and Eve, they're immediately overcome with guilt and shame. They become aware not just of their nakedness, but they realize that they're actually unclothed in the sense of being under God's judgment. 
And so the narrator tells us that they scramble together, they throw together some fig leaves to cover their nakedness, to hide their shame, but their patchwork provided no reprieve. And despite their newly stitched outfit, they felt no sense of relief, no, no inclination that things were better, no sense that, that things were right between them and God, which prompted them to run from God. Genesis 3 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But this is where God meets them. He makes garments for them of animal skin and clothes Adam and Eve. It's not that God was put off by their nakedness. I mean, he made their very bodies. He was not put off by that. God was showing them that there was, if there was any sort of covering, so to speak, that would allow them to stand confidently and without shame before a holy God, it must come from him. And so in this remarkable display of grace, God was pointing them and us to Jesus, the animal that was slain to provide the covering for Adam and Eve was a symbol of the sacrifice that was to come, the death of Jesus. And so we go back to Genesis 3, and we can see pretty clearly how this chapter in so many ways points to Jesus. But then we turn the page, and we get to Genesis 4, and we say, okay, now, how does that work here? Well, this morning I want to answer three questions that surface in the text. Um, Why was Cain's offering rejected by God? And what can we learn from that? Uh, Number two, why does Cain get so angry? Certainly there's... Much that we can learn from that. And finally, what does God's response to Cain tell us about the nature of God's salvation, which we saw last week, finds its realization in the work of Jesus on the cross? So, uh, first, why was Cain's offering rejected? Let me begin by reading. We'll cover verses 1 through 16 this morning. Let me read the first half uh, for starters. This is the way the word of the Lord reads. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. I, like, I prefer the translation, its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So from the very beginning of this chapter, which of course occurs immediately after the fall of man, the fall of our first parents, already there's a sense of hopefulness. Eve acknowledges that she has conceived and and given birth to a son by God's grace, through God's help, and already it seems like the promise of the seed who would come and, and crush the head of the serpent, it's already being fulfilled. Two brothers, and like brothers tend to be, they were very different. Uh, If you have uh, multiple kids, you know that that even kids from the same parents can can be wildly different, have very different personalities, different temperaments, and such was the case here. Cain was a farmer who took care of the ground. 
He dealt with plants and, and fruits and vegetables. Abel, on the other hand, was a shepherd who looked after the sheep. And this was pretty much the job market outside of the garden after the fall of Adam and Eve. There weren't uh, tech jobs. There weren't uh, teaching jobs. There weren't police. This was pretty much it. And we see right away that job satisfaction seems to be fine. Things were going pretty smoothly early on until everything is turned upside down by an uprising, an event prompted by the first description of worship in the Bible. Cain and Abel brought their offering to the Lord, and verses 4 and 5 tell us, tells us very matter-of-factly, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain he had no regard. Now that's, that's all we get. There's no explanation, there's no description as to why the Lord would, uh, would not accept the offering of Cain, no reasons given. Now, some have argued that, that Abel's offering was regarded or accepted because it involved blood sacrifice and Cain's didn't. Some have argued that, that Abel gave the very best that he had, the, the, the first fruit, so to speak, and Cain offered sort of second-rate uh, fruit. But there's no indication from the text that this was the case. What we do know, though, and we're told in other parts of the Scripture, is that the Lord's rejection of Cain's offering had everything to do with the heart of Cain as he presented his offering. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks." Now, this is so important. It was the faith of Abel that was the singular factor that made his offering accepted, acceptable to God and Cain's unacceptable. Unlike Abel, who was actually trusting by faith that his worship would be received by God because of God's grace, apparently Cain believed that by his worship he could gain something from God. French theologian Henri Blochet, or if you live in a different region of the country, Henry Blocher, uh, writes this, It was by his sacrifice that Cain hoped to build credit with God. So Cain thought, if I, just, if I bring this, then surely God will accept me. God will, I will endear myself to God by nature of my offering. Cain was outwardly compliant. By all accounts, we have no reason to believe that he sort of violated some sacrificial code he seemed to follow the rules, but inwardly, he was trusting in his own contributions. Well-known Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke says this, Cain's sin was tokenism. He looks religious, but in his heart, he is not totally dependent on God, childlike or grateful. Here's the answer to the first question, why did God reject Cain's sacrifice? And it makes for our first point. God looks at the heart at a person's motivation, before he considers a person's worship or service. Now, this may surprise you. I made this comment before in the past and, and sometimes sparked a bit of uh, controversy, but, but I think it's absolutely true. I believe the whole of Scripture bears witness to it. And that's this, that God is just as concerned about why we do what we do as he is about what we do. He's just as concerned about the why as he is about the what. Sometimes I think we believe if we just sort of keep the rules and, and, and we help other people out and we, we do as much good as we can, 
then that's really what God wants from us, just sort of obeying the commands. And yet, God is more concerned about our hearts than He is about simply our outward conformity to rules. He's more concerned about what's going on inside of us than how closely, again, we outwardly stick to the law, the letter of the law. I had a professor in seminary years ago who made the statement in class, when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be shocked by who's there, who we see, and who we can't see, who we can't find. He explained that, that what we look at, what we tend to look at is external things. And we see somebody who seems to live a really upright life, and they're very helpful, and they're always willing to chip in and, and come to the rescue of other people, and maybe they're at church every Sunday, and, and we think, now surely this person's got to be there. And then we see those who have failed countless times, who have repented of the same sin over and over, made a mess of their lives, gotten caught up in addiction, lost jobs and families, and we conclude, if not out loud, we think they can't possibly be in heaven. And yet, my professor said, there they'll be, communing with Jesus, enjoying the new heavens and the new earth, while the most righteous-looking people that we can remember we may not even find. The ones we say, oh, but, he, but she seems so godly, but, but oh, he was always so upright and respectful and polite, and I saw him every Sunday. There were students in the class who really took exception to this. There was all kinds of sort of murmuring and talking, and then one student raised his hand, and he said, yeah, but, but didn't Jesus say that you'll know them by their fruits? And the professor said, yeah, the fruit of repentance that comes from faith in Christ. Now, of course, the, that faith leads to actions. I, I understand that. Works of love for neighbor, driven by faith in the risen Christ, motivated by, by gratitude for the love of God. But it won't be the works that we do that gain entrance into heaven. It will be a, a heart that depends by faith on Jesus' finished work and nothing else. Now, please hear me. I'm not minimizing obedience. I'm not saying that we just obey God when we feel like it. Certainly, He's God and we're not. He's the authority. We're not. We obey God even if we don't feel like it. We're called, commanded to obey. So I'm not minimizing obedience. What I am saying is it's possible to obey even the letter of the law and in doing so completely dishonor God with our hearts because of the motivation for our obedience. And isn't this what happened exactly to the Pharisees? The most obedient people... They kept the letter of the law. They had all kinds of, they had dozens, hundreds of interpretations on what you could do, how you related to your neighbor, what you could do on the Sabbath, all the, the ritualistic cleansing and so on. They washed their hands before they ate for the exact amount of time that the law required. They prayed and fasted at the appropriate times. They worshiped in the synagogues. They watched the number of steps they took on the Sabbath and even still, Jesus said, these people are a bunch of hypocrites. A bunch of hypocrites. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What motivates our worship determines whether or not it is acceptable to God. What motivates our worship determines whether it is an offering that is acceptable to God. If we gather together to worship to get some emotional high, because we just have to get to church and worship so we'll feel better. Who are we really thinking about in our worship? 
if we gather for worship because that's what we've always done. It's our tradition. We would never miss a Sunday. Who are we really focusing on? If we worship God because we think that's going to sort of put us in with Him, give, him, uh, give us a place with Him or gain His good graces, whose interests do we really have at heart? Who are we thinking of when we worship? The moment that we believe that, we can, that what we can offer God is sufficient or by it God should owe us something, then our offering becomes actually detestable to God. Isn't this what the book of Amos is all about? Bringing the offering, all these sorts of things, with this understanding that by doing so, I will endear myself to God. I will earn His favor. He will now be in debt to me. And God says, away with all of it. It's a stench in my nostril. The psalmist says this, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. As Cain would learn, God looks on the heart. Now look at verses 6 and 7 again. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When Cain saw that his brother's offering was accepted, he was filled with rage. We're told that it was even evident in his demeanor. His face fell. A more literal reading would go like this. His wrath burned exceedingly hot. In other words, he had this sort of resentment against his brother. He had this anger against God. He was even frustrated and and surely disappointed and even angry with himself. There's no remorse over his murder. There's no shock. He's just seemingly filled with rage. Which I think begs the question, Like, what's really going on here? Now, the presenting problem, which is not usually the real problem, the presenting problem is jealousy over his brother. He was mad that his brother was accepted and he wasn't. But what was behind the problem? It was probably this, I believe, that Cain was angry over God's sovereign authority, that God actually had the right and prerogative to receive some offerings and resist or reject others. It was God's right by virtue of him being God to accept or reject anything brought to him. One uh, old-time theologian says, what made Cain beside himself with rage was that the Lord showed himself to be the Lord. In other words, God showed that he has absolute sovereign authority and Cain couldn't stand it. He didn't like it. He was outraged at the notion that God is so sovereign that he can determine whom he will accept and who he will reject, what sort of offering he will receive, and what sort of offering he will decline. God made it clear that he has the divine prerogative to determine what is right and what is wrong. Looking even deeper than outward behavior into the level of motives. Now we have our idea of fairness, don't we? We believe that Certain things should be a certain way. We have our ideas about what God should do with our children, with our careers, with our retirement, uh, with our vacations. I had a couple, uh, I was managing this uh, one couple on staff many years ago. They were both in their early 20s and they were married and both on staff. Terrific people. I really love them dearly. They took a vacation one time and uh, 
scheduled a week. It had been planned for three months in advance. They took a vacation. It rained the whole time. And when they came back, they kind of sheepishly said to me, they said, hey, um, you know, it kind of rained the whole time we were gone. Does that have to actually count as our vacation? I said, yeah, you know, this is kind of the way it works in the real world. You know, you, you schedule a vacation, you take it, and if the sun's not out, you know, it still counts. Um, but we have our ideas of the way that things should work in our lives. Here's the answer to the second question, why was Cain so angry? And it's our second point. Mankind has always struggled with a God who acts without consulting us and who upsets our ideas of justice and fairness. You know, we feel we've got a pretty good idea of the way things should be, what's fair and what's unfair. It's neither right nor fair, many argue, to ask a person who no longer loves someone else to actually stay married to them. Well, that doesn't seem fair, but, but she doesn't love him anymore. How can, her, how can the church, how can those believers around her go and say, oh, you need to stay married? It's neither right nor fair, some say, for a pregnant woman to be told what to do with her body, even if there's a person bearing God's image inside. It's neither right nor fair, some would contend, for some people to be denied the right to marry, even though they love each other, regardless of what God says about the institution that He designed. We have our concepts of justice, and we believe that those should prevail. When God doesn't meet our standard of fairness, sometimes we simmer a little inside. It's just sort of our frustration is on a low burn, but sometimes... We erupt in anger, as we've seen this morning. We say, how could this happen to my child? I've waited my whole life to watch him walk across that stage, and now there's no graduation. How could this be? This is not right, God. How can this happen to my daughter? I prayed for her wedding for decades, and now it has to be reduced to 50 people? Like, this is not fair. By the way, I did officiate a wedding last weekend that was going to be a much bigger affair and was reduced to 10 people. And I just loved the way this family, they just embraced it. They just went with it. They trusted God in it. They celebrated this, this ceremony as it was. But that's hard to do when things don't go the way we plan. Why is my child this way? This is not what I prayed for. Why can't I have children? I've been praying about this. How could my husband do this to me? This is not fair. Why would my wife say that to me? This is not fair. And these are, these are all real, very painful scenarios that I would never in a million years minimize or, or diminish. And some of these questions we actually have every right to ask. But the thing is, we can't stay there. We can't linger there too long. Otherwise, we begin to question God's goodness, which is what Adam and Eve did. We begin to question God's provisions for us. We began to have bitterness in our hearts against this sovereign God. And sometimes, as we've seen this morning, the results can be absolutely catastrophic. And the reality is, because we live in this sin-cursed world, we're going to struggle with God's sovereignty. We're going to struggle with authority, any sort of authority in our lives. We're going to struggle with our conception of fairness and justice and rightness and wrong. We're going to have these struggles. We constantly battle in the flesh against these tendencies to doubt, the tendency to elevate ourselves and to lower God. 
But the text reminds us that sin is ready to pounce at every moment. So there's a sense of awareness of this. You remember the Academy Award-winning movie, I think it was in the early 2000s, late 90s, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It was made on a shoestring budget, uh, but just grossed hundreds of millions of dollars and kind of reinvented the martial arts genre of movie making. And if you saw it, you remember that it's beautifully done in terms of uh, the, the graphics and so on. There are these scenes where these dragons and tigers, are they, they stand ready to pounce, and then they just release, they unleash themselves, and it's this beautiful, tragic thing that takes place. Well, that's kind of how sin lurks with us. This is the first time we've actually, the Bible uses the word sin, and it is personified here as a crouching animal ready to pounce. The desires of the flesh. We have this spiritual battle all the time that rages between the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh. We walk around, we live in these sin-cursed fleshly bodies, so we want what we want. The desires of the flesh stand ready to overpower us, to have us, according to verse 7. Now, here's some very specific application, and that is don't let sin hover around you by, by constantly reasoning about the rightness or wrongness of it. The more we contemplate sin, the more reasonable it becomes in our minds. It's ready to pounce. But but verse 7 offers some hope as well. God says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Now the phrase, will you you not be accepted, is is kind of a Hebrew play on words, which of course we can't see in the English language. But it's a play on words that actually complements verse 6, where the narrator tells us Cain's face fell. So the phrase, will you not be accepted, literally says, will you not be lifted up? Will not your countenance be lifted up? In other words, God is, is not saying to Cain, if you just do better next time, if you bring more to the table in your offering, you'll be accepted. What he's saying is, if you humble yourself before me, you will be lifted up. It's very similar to what Peter says. We remember encountering Peter so much in the Gospel of John. Peter says the same thing, that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, we will be lifted up, we will be exalted. When we face the temptation to question God's sovereignty or even to lash out in anger, the response that God calls for, which is enabled by our spirit, is to humble ourselves before the Lord, to recognize His majesty, His holiness, His sovereignty, His authority, and to believe that what He says is true, believe that what He promised is enough. Now, as if it weren't clear enough just how detestable this first, this first murder in the history of the world was, notice the way that the narrator repeats the phrase, your brother. Look at verses 8 and 9. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, we read this, we say, okay, we get it already, right? They're brothers, okay? Abel was Cain's brother. We understand that. Seven times overall in this, in this brief section, we're informed that Abel was Cain's brother. Well, it's, it's emphasized repeatedly as a way of expressing just how horrific this sin really was. Pure, premeditated murder against one's own sibling. Not an enemy, not a stranger. Murder of one's own brother. This is 
only the second generation of humanity, and already we have introduced into the world fratricide. Cain has rejected God's authority and allowed himself to be mastered by Satan. He has become a traitor in the kingdom, and so the punishment would be severe. Look at verses 9 through 12. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. Strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now we read this, and of course it sounds terrible, it sounds bad, but we don't really understand just how horrific this would be. God's verdict didn't just mean that Cain would have to work harder, that he would wander around, but that he would have, for the rest of his life, a price on his head. This is the original wild, wild west. This is the time when, in ancient Israel, and the readers of Genesis, of course, would have recognized this, a person who killed a family member would have ultimately been actively pursued by what was called an avenger of blood. So Cain would have been the target of uh, down the road of, of bounty hunters. There would be no escaping death from, for Cain. His death sentence would surely come to fruition. But this is where it gets so good. Look at verses 13 through 16. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, how beautiful is that? The Lord says to him, no, that's not, it's not going to be the way you think. If anyone kills you, the punishment shall return to them sevenfold. And then we see this, this very sort of obscure, mysterious statement. The narrator tells us that the Lord put a mark on Cain. Now, we're never really told what that was, and, I, and I've read probably seven or eight different sort of uh, theories some say the mark was some sort of tattoo that was on his head and face that, so that people would know. Uh, some say, I read one commentator who said the mark was probably a, 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 an accompanying animal, a dog. I even read one commentator went so far as to say, it seems a little outrageous to me, but that the mark was some sort of hairstyle. So maybe they look at it and they say, oh, look at that. And he, God gave him a mullet or something. He said, look at that hairstyle. That's somebody you don't mess with. We don't know exactly what the mark was. We're never really told uh, what it was. Again, there's all kinds of speculation. Um, but whatever it was, it was a mark of God's mercy. Cain deserved the most severe penalty because he had committed the most severe crime, the shedding of innocent blood, and even beyond that, the blood of, an own, of his own family member. And yet, God preserved his life. He didn't remove all the consequences of, Cain, of Cain's rebellion. But he acted tenderly in sparing Cain, sparing his life. Now, this is what the, the story of Cain and Abel reveals about God and his salvation. Here's our final point. 
Our God is a merciful king who delights in delivering criminals and fugitives from a seemingly inescapable death sentence. And now we're starting to see the hints and traces of the Redeemer. The big story of the Bible, which starts in a beautiful, pristine garden and will end in in this amazing city, is about God's redemptive relationship with His people, His covenant relationship with His people, a people who continue to rebel against Him, worshiping other things, turning their hearts to, to, to useless idols, and incurring upon themselves the just wrath of God. And yet it is God's very people that He continues to rescue and deliver time and time again. He rescues them from the plot and scheme of Pharaoh. He delivers them from their enslavement to the Egyptians. He rescues them from the giant of the Philistines. He delivers them from their oppression to Rome. He would deliver them time and time again from the threat of death and extinction. And all of this points to God's greatest rescue, His deliverance of His people from the greatest threat, sin and death, through the work of His promised Messiah. See, it's not just Cain who was subjected to a death sentence. Every single person who's ever born is born with a sin curse and therefore must die. And not just physically, but every single person who's ever born is born separated from, estranged from, alienated from the God who made them. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, we're born, again, cursed by sin. And we affirm Adam's choice every day by our own sinful and selfish choices. Our worries reveal what we care about most. Our fears disclose what we truly worship. Our passions give light to what we love the deepest. Our thoughts about ourselves reveal our idolatry and where we go to seek worth and meaning and purpose. We have rebelled against God and continue to seek other things over Him. But God does not write us off. He does not abandon us. He does not give us what we deserve, which is eternal punishment, eternal death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. What does God do? He sends a rescuer. He sends a deliverer who would free us from our death sentence by dying in our place. What's the whole context of this passage anyway? It's about sacrifice, right? Abel and Cain, they bring their sacrifice. One is accepted, one is not. The whole thing is about sacrifice. What it would be through the sacrifice of another, foreshadowed through this very event, that God would reconcile sinful humanity to Himself and deliver mankind from its seemingly inescapable death sentence. He is the deliverer. He is the rescuer. He is the one who has promised His continual presence, and He has shown that He is faithful Here's what we are to learn from Genesis 4. Not that Cain is able and Cain is bad and Abel is good, although that, certainly that's true. But that God pours out His grace on the most undeserving of people. Fugitives, captives, slaves, rebels, wanderers. He pours out His grace 
through the person and work of his son. The most shocking thing about this story, by the way, is not necessarily the fratricide. One brother killing another, though, though that is absolutely surprising. The real surprise is that God, by his mercy, has spared us of our death sentence. He has secured for us our pardon through the person and work of Jesus. See, God's grace doesn't show up in the neat and tidy situations of our lives, mostly. Now, certainly it's there, but it shows up most arrestingly amid our messes, reminding us that regardless of what we've done or how many times we've done it, we're never beyond the reach of God's mercy. The living God is a gracious King who visits the broken with a word of hope. I am still here. I will never leave you. I will keep you. I will hold you fast. I have guaranteed your forgiveness. Now let me draw this to a close with a quote in two parts here by Matthew Henry because I think it's so beautiful. Matthew Henry writes this, In all ages there have been two sorts of worshipers, such as Cain and Abel, namely proud, hardened, despisers of the gospel method of salvation who attempt to please God in ways of their own devising and humble believers who draw near to Him in the way that He has revealed. And so the question I ask for you this morning is, which one are you? How do you approach God? How have you approached God? Is it based on your own clever devising? Is it based on your church attendance or your giving or the fact that you're more respectful and obedient or polite than your neighbor? What is it that you're really trusting in when you come before the holy God? Maybe the Holy Spirit is revealing to you this morning that, and I've seen this happen to people in their 50s, 60s, even one time, a guy by the name of Bob in his 80s. I've seen God bring people to the realization that I've called myself a believer for decades. I don't really know God. I'm really trusting in my own ability. Which one are you? Well, maybe you're in that second category where you've, you're trusting in your own ability. Let me encourage you by Matthew Henry's word as he summarizes God's word to Cain. He says this, Thou hast not done well, yet do not despair. The remedy is at hand, Christ, the great sin offering. If you put your faith in Christ this morning, then you can know for sure that there's nothing that will separate you from the love of God. And if you've been, just been playing the game, you've been going to church Ever since you were a little kid, you were practically born in the nursery. But you've never really turned in repentant faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never really despised of your own efforts, your own self-salvation projects, and really run to Christ. You can hear the words of God as interpreted through Matthew Henry. Yeah, you've not done well, but do not despair. The remedy is at hand. Christ, the sin sacrifice. May we trust in that this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, their salvation is secure. Neither things above nor things below, nor things we do nor things we have done can separate us from your love, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we try so hard to sort of uh, show you that we're worthy of being loved and forgiven and saved, you bring us to the recognition by your grace and through your spirit that we can never do enough. Your law does not grade on a curve. It requires absolute perfection. And Father, I pray for the one this morning who's watching 
maybe in a small group, maybe uh, at home, maybe on the road somewhere, but, and you are working, you're drawing them, you're churning in their heart by your Spirit, Lord. Give them the grace to see the forgiveness that can only be theirs by faith in Jesus. Father, give us the ability by your grace to bring offerings before you that are deeply rooted in our dependence on you, our recognition of your holiness and our brokenness, and our faith, our belief that what Jesus did on the cross was enough. Keep us close to yourself, Father, we pray. Hold us fast in Christ's name. Amen.